Greetings and welcome to episode 37 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we are going to be talking about one of the darkest episodes in all of Chinese history, whether modern Chinese history or ancient Chinese history. That topic is the Great Leap Forward. Now, the way that I approach the Great Leap Forward is I like to discuss the history of early Mao-era economics, all right? Or really, it's not even necessarily Mao, it's the economic debates of the 1950s, okay? The Great Leap Forward is basically the catastrophic result over a debate about economic speed. How fast and by what means are we going to achieve communism? Because this is our first episode in which we are now past 1949 and on the mainland. So that means that the Chinese Communist Party has taken over power. They have kicked Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists off the mainland. We already know now from previous episodes they went to Taiwan and we saw what happened to them there. And now we need to start talking about how are the communists going to rule the mainland. Okay? Now, the communists have some big ideas, all right? They come into power, and they have some really radical big ideas about what they're going to do with, you know, Chinese society, with the economy, with culture, okay? Um, so let's talk about these today, all right? Let, let's talk a little bit about the basic principles of socialist economic theory, all right? The, the goal of socialism, uh, as you may have heard before, um, is to achieve equality among all members of society, all right, eventually, way off in the future. And the socialist critique of capitalism says that the problem with capitalism is that it's too individualistic, okay? Capitalism uh, creates a surplus, and that surplus enriches individuals. It does not enrich the state, okay? Because it does not enrich the state, just individual people are able to accumulate a, an obscene amount of the surplus that a capitalist society can produce, and that's not good for everyone, right? It's only good for this tiny minority, this tiny percentage of people who have control over that surplus, all right? The 1%. It also says that the problem with capitalism is that it has a market that is too chaotic, all right? Again, because the surplus that capitalism produces doesn't go to the state, uh, it's sort of you know, it's a, it's this chaotic uh, inclusion of so many different types of actors, private actors, government actors, setting of interest rates, all this sort of stuff, stock markets, is that it's very, it's very chaotic. The market is very chaotic, and this leads to an inefficient investment of the surplus, an inefficient investment of capital. If you let the state have control of overall this capital, all right, if the state could nationalize certain types of markets, agricultural markets, okay, uh, investor markets, then they would be able, uh, in theory again, all of this is in theory, trust me, whereas we're going to see uh, almost everything that the communists want to do is in theory. Um, if the state could have control over all of this surplus and all of this capital, then they could rationally sit down and figure out the best way to invest it without all the inefficient waste of the chaotic capitalist market. Okay, and the third problem is that capitalism uh, has winners and losers. Okay, sort of like that individualistic thing. You know, it has winners and losers. The winners create gross class distinctions between different economic levels in society. Okay, and they harness, or you might say, exploit the productive powers of everyone else for themselves. And in a place like China, this sort of uh, winner who acts as a parasite 
on all the other, you know, majority of the population is going to be identified as the landlords, the rural gentry, all right, the people who really don't engage in any sort of work whatsoever. They live off the rent that their accumulated land allows them to bring in uh, an income from. And as a result, you have 98% of, you know, an entire county of a million people who are working every day, backbreaking labor. And most of that wealth goes to the one or 2% who are landlords who essentially just sit back and collect rent. All right, that's a, it creates a parasitic class. How is socialism going to change all this? Well, first, socialism, in theory, is going to put all private property and wealth under state stewardship, state ownership. It's going to nationalize everything. And when I talk about nationalism here, uh, uh, nationalizing here, this is not the same as nationalism. Nationalism is this ideology uh, in which you identify first and foremost with the nation, this abstract, collective, homogenous nation that you are supposedly a part of. All right? Nationalist ideology is, 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 is ubiquitous throughout the world in the 20th century. Okay? To nationalize something in a, a socialist or an economic sense means to hand over control and ownership of this product, of this capital, to the government. And then the government, you know, in theory, on paper, rationally decides how to allocate these resources, how to invest them, how to run the economy. All right. So socialism is going to take all private property and wealth, get rid of this chaotic market, get rid of the parasitic individualistic 1%, put all that stuff under state ownership. And then two, it's going to concentrate these resources in a planned economy. One of the things that you see over and over again with the Soviet Union and with communist China is the, is, is the creation of these five-year plans. All right, the five-year plans are a quintessential communist state tactic in economic planning in which a bunch of you know, economic planners get together and they hash out you know, a huge book-length uh, plan on how we're going to invest all the capital that we have. Okay, we've taken all the property from everyone in the entire country. Now, how are we going to allocate this and invest it to best benefit the needs of the people and the needs of the state as we, the Chinese Communist Party, see it? All right, it's our interpretation of what's in your best interests. All right, and so you just hope and pray that we have no selfish or corrupt intent here and that we're not normal human beings with all of our shortcomings and foibles. Uh, we're, we are supermen and we will absolutely allocate this in accordance with your needs, all right? Not my perception, my selfish perception or, 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 or whatever of what I think you need, okay? And then three, the socialist state will also engage in large-scale production because we've taken over everything and because the state now uh, collectively in organized, rational, scientific fashion. Scientific, that's the idea behind this. It's all supposed to be scientific. Okay, we're using the best scientific new practices to analyze the economy, analyze the resources at our disposal, and then we're going to reallocate them and reinvest them. And because this is so rational and scientific... Okay, uh, we can engage in much larger scale production than before. Bigger is better. Okay, that's the idea here. And because most socialist nations are generally poorer than the advanced Western capitalist, you know, sort of first world nations, they want to catch up really, really fast. Okay, so bigger is absolutely better for them. If you can do something bigger and faster, then that's absolutely what you want to do. Okay, because you want to reach military economic parity 
with those most advanced powers as soon as possible, or they might invade your country again one day and you'll become their colony. All right. Now, amid all of this, what is the role of the Communist Party, whether it's Chinese Communist Party, Russian Communist Party, whatever? The role of the party. The party says that it embodies the will of the producers. Producers supposed to be proletariat, all right? Uh, the urban workers, all right? That's what, who the producers are supposed to be in classical Marxist formulations. In a place like China and Russia as well, uh, here's one of the ironies that we're going to see, is, you know, the revolution took place in overwhelmingly poor agrarian countries. Okay, so most of your producers are not going to be urban workers in factories. They are going to be rural peasants. Okay, so the party says, we embody the will of rural peasants. We know what you want, and we know how to get it. Okay, we will reinvest the surplus of our economy in an equitable manner and in the interest of the people. Footnote, go down to the fine print. What is footnote number one? The interests of the people as interpreted by the party. <laughs> okay? Always as interpreted by the party. This is not some faceless, neutral, objective, godlike machine, Han Fates' well-oiled bureaucracy in which there's no, you know, uh, 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 human foibles involved. These are people who say, I represent the will of the party. I represent the rational, scientific, analytical capabilities of the party. And that's how I'm going to divine, <laughs> calculate what your interests are. Okay? You see, this is sort of a rhetorical, uh, a convenient rhetorical trap here. Alright? When the party says that we embody the will of the producers, then it basically has constructed an ironproof, uh, a bulletproof armor against any criticisms from those people. How do you criticize people in power, when the people in power have a monopoly in saying, I represent you, <laughs> right? We represent the collective will of the people. Well, if they represent the collective will of the people, then everything they do is infallible. And the people can't very well criticize them. All right, this is even more so in a society in which, you know, it's an authoritarian society in which you don't have free media. All right, those criticisms are going to be few and far between. So, as the party interprets the interest and will of the people and, re and you know, rationally, scientifically reinvest the surplus of the economy, we're going to start making great strides, all right, in our economy. We're going to catch up to those Western powers really, really fast. And we're going to pass through the classical stages of history as, as laid out by Marx and Engels. We're going to pass these stages of history, um, you know, fairly methodically. What are the stages of history in communist ideology? Well, you begin with primitive communism. That's way back when. That's like hunter-gatherers. Hunter, hunter right? Primitive communism because most people are economically relatively equal in these you know, imaginary hunter-gatherer hunter tribes 100,000 years ago. Okay, but it's just sort of by necessity. It's not, it's, you know, they don't have a whole lot of goods to go around. So inequality and exploitation of one by the other hasn't really arisen yet. All right. And then things move from that to a slave society. Slave society. That's like the most ancient civilizations, ancient Egypt, ancient China. These were slave societies. Okay. And then that sort of moved on to feudalism. 
All right. Feudalism is going to be referring to sort of like the, the, the thousand years or so prior to the rise of the first Chinese empire, the warring states period. All right. That's what Han Feitze was trying to abolish. He was trying to say, no, we need a well-oiled bureaucratic machine um, in which people can be appointed to all their positions without any personal connections to the emperor. All right, we need to get beyond this sort of lord-king mentality in which the, the local feudal lords have this immense amount, amount of autonomy. All right, things need to be much more streamlined and uh, specifically defined in your roles. All right, that's a feudalist society. And then from feudalism, you move on to capitalism. From capitalism, you move, you move on to socialism. And from socialism, you finally move on to heaven itself. Communism, a communist society. When you reach a communist society, you have no social classes. The state withers away. There's no state. There's perfect equality all around. All right. Socialism, when you achieve socialism, you're saying you've basically gotten rid of social classes, but there's still a state. The state is still there because it still needs to, to manage the transition into communism. All right. And the state somehow is supposed to allow itself to wither away. All right, good luck with that. <laughs> People in power voluntarily relinquishing their power. Okay, now, here's the problem, though. Communism was originally envisioned as something that was intended to take root in advanced industrialized states. Okay, communism was, you know, they were supposed to, the communist socialist revolutions, they were supposed to take place in, like, Berlin or Paris or Manchester all right, you know, dense industrial urban economies with gritty working environments in which you have a large number of proletariat urban factory workers who have some sense of, of, of education, not a whole lot, but they have some, and they're being exploited, and yet with the, with the insights of a communist leader, they will be taught that you actually have more power than the boss at the top of your company. If the workers unite together, you'll realize you are the means of production. And if you rise up and seize control of the means of production, you can stop your own exploitation and redistribute in a more equitable manner all the wealth that you create. That's where communism was supposed to take root, is in those places. That is why when the Bolsheviks uh, succeeded in their revolution from 1917 to 1919, when they came to power, they immediately said, Russia is not suitable for this. This is an overwhelmingly agrarian nation. We need to create an, a communist international, the Comintern. Remember, we talked about that a few episodes back, in which we're going to export the revolution to the countries where it's supposed to take place because we don't expect that the revolution will, will survive in an overwhelmingly poor agricultural nation. And they continued to agitate among places that had a true urban proletariat. And they also hedged their bets and tried to, uh, to, to agitate in places like China as well. Eventually, quite successfully. Okay, um, but the irony, the great irony of the 20th century is that communist parties only seized power in heavily agrarian, relatively undeveloped states that were located on the margins of the capitalist centers of the world. Okay, how did they come to power? They came to power basically by taking advantage all right, by being opportunistic and being able to ride the back of civil wars that tore their societies apart, heavily weakened the existing party that was in power or the government that was in power, and seizing power amid this sort of uh, uh, power vacuum. 
Think about it. In Russia, Lenin and Stalin and the Russian Communist Party seizes power in the middle of World War I. Right, in the middle of World War I, when the Tsarist government is already significantly weakened and there's already internal unrest against Russia's participation and losses in World War I. This is the environment in which they're able to take power in the middle of a war. Exact same thing happens in China. The communists have no chance getting into power while the nationalists were in power, while Chiang Kai-shek was in power, while there was relative peace and stability. All right, the communists, uh, their fortunes started to rise during World War II when the sitting power, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, continually gets bombarded by foreign powers on, on, on the battlefield. Right? And this is when the communists got really, really powerful in Yan'an and then were able to eventually seize power after the war with the fatally weakened Nationalist Party. Okay. Why does this seem to be the case? Not only does it take place in uh, poor agrarian countries, okay, it also takes place amid wartime, amid war. These, 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 these parties don't seize power dur during peacetime. Okay? Because think about it. In a wealthy democratic country, there's pretty much zero chance <laughs> that a majority of the voters are going to willingly vote into power a party that says we're going to redistribute the wealth of all the people. Okay? Those who are the 1%, those who are the 10%, those who are the 30% are going to use their overwhelming amount of economic and political resources to make sure that that outcome never happens. Okay? Thus, it seems that in the beginning, a communist party really only comes to power by forcibly seizing that power in a country without a tradition of democracy or citizen involvement in government, and which is overwhelmingly agricultural. All right, the great irony of the 20th century. They did not take power where Marx thought they were going to take power. <laughs> okay, among the urban proletariat of the wealthy, advanced industrial states. So, because this is the case, the Communist Party of China and Russia has to recalibrate their goals. They have to say, we're not in a position to do socialism right now, because we haven't even really reached full-fledged full capitalism. There was debates in China, are we still a feudal society, or have we reached full-fledged capitalism? And they thought, well, wait a second, we seem to be less advanced than the Western powers, and we see them as capitalists, so we can't be full capitalists. But clearly... We're not entirely feudal either. We've moved a little bit beyond that, right? And so they were seen as somewhere caught somewhere in between. Semi-capitalist, semi-feudalist. All right, so they said, you know what? We need to get to capitalism first in order to overcome the liabilities of our agricultural uh, base and our tiny urban proletariat. Very tiny in the case of China. In practice, this translates into the lopsided industri industrialization of the cities at the constant and tragic expense of the countryside. This is what's going to be happening in the first couple decades of a communist era that has taken power in a largely agrarian peasant-based society. All right? The peasants are going to have to sacrifice. They're going to have to suffer. Okay? Because it is urban industrialization, it is urban factories that are going to enable the country to catch up with the most powerful states and prevent the recurrence of imperialism. Okay? You're not yet trying to achieve utopian equality for the peasantry. 
Another way of saying this is that until China reaches industrial parity with the West, anything that improves the material life of non-urban rural residents is something that detracts from the state's limited ability to play catch-up modernization to the powers that you fear are going to come back and bully you around again. There's a famous quote from a peasant that was studied by uh, uh, an anthropologist in the late 1970s after the Mao era was over and China was starting to slowly embark on reform. And there's this famous study in which one of the peasants tells the foreign anthropologist, he says, yeah, we achieved equality in the countryside during, during the years of Chairman Mao, but we didn't achieve rural equality by raising the standards of living to a higher level and then everyone was at the same level of living. We achieved rural equality by bringing the standards of the top rural residents down to a level of poverty with everyone else. <laughs> All right? That's how we achieved equality. Because the countryside, the peasants, all the wealth is going to be stripped away. And the inequality will be stripped away as well. But not in the sense that we might think of. All right? The living standards of everyone will be lowered. And then all the surplus will be taken away by the state, leaving just a bare minimum of food and resources for the peasants to survive. Communism will, in the 20th century will not be kind to peasants, whether it's in the Soviet Union or whether it's in China. It's going to be very, very unkind because the priority is capitalist development in the cities. Okay, if you want to have any chance of surviving the first decade or two of a communist state, you better live in the city. And even then, it's not, it's not guaranteed because there's going to be so many goddamn political campaigns. Sooner or later, you're going to fall foul of one of them. Okay, so what all this leads to is the, what we might call in, inverted rural priorities of these uh, communist states, especially in China, a backward communist state. What they're going to focus on is something called primitive accumulation. Remember that term, primitive accumulation. This is the, the, the preeminent economic strategy of the 1950s. This is how China is going to catch up with the industrialized countries of the world in spite of its peasant background, its peasant economic base. In spite of that, what is primitive accumulation? It's when you increase your agricultural productivity, okay, the, the agricultural produce coming out of the countryside, grain, rice, millet, sorghum, whatever, all right, you need to increase that as much as you possibly can, but not for peasant consumption. You're not growing all this stuff and then feeding it back to the peasants and saying, look, you're living off much better than you were before. No, you grow as much as you can in the countryside, as much as humanly possible, heck, more than is humanly possible. Then you take that surplus, you take it away from the countryside, you do not put that into the mouths of your peasants, and you sell that surplus on the international market for cash. Then you use that hard-won cash to invest in urban industrial infrastructure. Okay? Shouldn't surprise us to learn that most of these communist states, uh, they don't have too many foreign friends. All right, the advanced capitalist nations of the world are quite hostile to communist parties, if you've never noticed before. Um, and they're not all that willing to give them huge loans, invest in their economies. They're quite scared, actually. And they think, if I put my money in that country, it's going to disappear. I don't trust them. And they're hostile to everything we stand for. So it's hard to get capital for investment in these early communist states. 
Okay, and when China comes to power, they think, oh, the Soviet Union is our friend. They're going to invest a lot in us. No, they don't. Mao travels to Moscow in 1950 and has a very cold reception by Stalin, comes back, and is very upset to learn that the Soviets are only going to give him peanuts, barely any money whatsoever, to invest in their economy. It's like, well, shit, we're on our own again. I guess we're going to have to do this all by ourselves. Okay? Primitive accumulation is how you're going to do that. That's how you're going to raise cash in an environment where all you have is a huge, endless expanse of rural farmland. Okay? Sell that agricultural surplus on the international market for cash. Use that cash to invest in urban factories. And then those urban factories will produce the missiles, the tanks, the planes, the steel, the bombs, whatever, the chemicals that you need to achieve military parity with the most advanced countries in the world. All right. The strategy will work quite well. It will allow the Soviet Union, despite having a vastly inferior economy overall, and you know, inferior standard of living overall, nevertheless, the Soviet Union will be uh, matching the United States every step of the way for in, in the race to space. And they'll actually beat them into space with Sputnik. Okay? China the exact same way. By 1964, China's tested its first nuclear bomb. Despite the catastrophe of the Great Leap Forward, it managed to put all of its resources, all of its eggs in this one basket. And yeah, we've, 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 we've achieved military parity, or at least enough military uh, deterrent to prevent these advanced Western countries from ever thinking that they can you know, go to battle uh, with us again and not suffer serious consequences. Think of North Korea today. North Korea has no earthly business being around, okay? And yet somehow they've managed to achieve uh, not military parity, but a certain level of military prowess that makes it not eligible to be the next Iraq. We'll go into Iraq because precisely because we don't think that they have a nuclear bomb. Okay, North Korea, there's no way in hell the United States is going to invade North Korea. Yeah, to be a North Korean peasant probably sucks royally. It's really, really miserable. But they use that primitive accumulation and they managed to get the military trinkets and baubles that they need to keep the rest of the world at bay. Okay. All right, so here's the other problem, other uh, complicating factor that we need to think about. You're trying to get to the full-fledged capitalism stage of history, according to the communist rubric. Only then can you consider moving on to the next stages of socialism and communism, regardless of whether or not you think these stages of history are legitimate. Even within the socialist ideology itself, there is a major problem with these stages. That is, according to Marx, graduation from one stage to the next of history is supposed to take many generations, possibly centuries. Centuries! Hundreds of years! That was imagined to be the case in, in the example of advanced Western countries. It took hundreds of years to go from feudalism to, you know, full-fledged full capitalism. And from full-fledged capitalism to full-fledged socialism, that's going to be another many generations, 100 years, 200 years. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be in my lifetime. Here's the problem. The political careers of founding communist leaders last only two or three decades if they're lucky. It took a long time to seize power. A lot of these men are no spring chickens anymore by the time they actually manage to seize power. Lenin dies within four or five years after taking power. 
Okay. Mao Zedong is already, let's see here, 1893 to... He's already in, in practically 50 years old, I believe. He's, he's, I think he's over 50 years old because he dies in 76 and he's 83, I believe, when he dies. Um, yeah, anyways. Okay. He's an old man. Okay. Um, and he ended up living an extraordinary long period of time. Amazing. The habits this guy had, it's amazing Mao Zedong lived until his early, his, his early 80s. All right. Much more reasonable would have been to assume that he's only going to make it into his mid-70s, which means, heck, he might only have 10, 15 years in power. All the men who were members of the Communist Party don't expect that they're going to have forever their entire careers. They had to spend so many damn decades just, just fighting to gain power. Who knows how long they're going to be in power. I say all this because they're very impatient. They're very impatient. They want to reap the fruits of their struggle while they're alive. It doesn't help. <laughs> it doesn't help that they're all atheists as well. And they don't believe that there's any other life. So it's not like they can look down from heaven and say, Oh, great. I, I sowed the seeds of socialist society 200 years in the future. Oh, wonderful. I have take such great satisfaction from this. No, you die, you're dead. Worms eat you. You're, you're, you're gone. So any accolades, any satisfaction you're going to get has to be before you die. And you're already an old man. You cannot accumulate revolutionary credibility and merit and applause by being content with incremental gains. All this is to say is that they're going to move way too fast. And there's always an incentive to bend the rules of the stages of a Marxist history and say, you know what? We're special. Yes, Marx said it was going to take a long time to go from capitalism to socialism, but hell, we're the Chinese people. Aren't the Chinese people wonderful? This is nationalism now, all right? Which still exists in communist societies, even if they say it doesn't. All right, and nationalist ideology tells you that your nation is special. It's capable of doing superhuman things that other nations can't do, even though every nation says that about itself. <laughs> all right? And so we're the Chinese nation, God damn it. Of course we can do this. Don't sell ourselves short. We can move fast. Marx, Marx didn't, never met a nation like us. And we're going to push through these stages faster than Marxist theory itself could ever justify. So Mao is going to claim socialism is achieved in 1956, seven years after he came to power. Oh, it only took seven years. Wow. Communism, he'll say, was achieved during the Great Leap Forward, 1958. Holy crap. Ten years from semi-feudalism, semi-capitalism, to leapfrog over socialism and achieve communism? It's ridiculous. But it's what they're going to be incentivized to do. Okay, you didn't get to power by being conservative and making incremental gains. You waged a revolution, and we're going to continue that revolution. Political capital will redound to he who advocates a faster pace every time. It will encourage utopian visions and blind disregard for sensible restraints and checks and balances. Because we're special. And we need to get through these stages as fast as possible in order to catch up with the advanced industrial powers of the world. And because I'm going to die soon, and I want to make sure that I see the results. Okay? 
All right, so who's going to suffer? Well, you know, the peasants are going to suffer. Let's get started with the suffering in the countryside. There's a lot of it to cover. First step, land reform. This starts about 1950 and goes on for a year or two. What is the goal of land reform? The goal of land reform is to gain the political support of 70 to 80 percent of the population that lives in the countryside, create goodwill among them, and hopefully release their productive powers so they will produce more grain and sorghum and rice than they ever had before. I think of this sort of like Hansel and Gretel. All right. You're fattening up the peasantry. You're the witch and you're fattening up the peasantry. The Communist Party is the witch in the, the candy cane house, okay? And they've got these, these peasants, Hansel and Gretel, and they're saying we need to fatten them up. And they don't realize they're being fattened up to be slaughtered one day. But we're going to fatten them up and gain their trust. They're going to like us. And then that's when we're going to be able to start leveraging our investment and fattening up Hansel and Gretel and start taking uh, the fat, the flesh, away from them and investing it where we really want to invest it. All right, so land reform. The first thing that's going to happen is you're going to eliminate the landed gentry, the landlords. Communism says that the uh, Marxist ideology says that landlords are the quintessential parasitic class. They produce nothing and yet they take all these resources away and they exploit a huge number of people. The landed gentry will be eliminated as a class during land reform. And they will be replaced with party representatives, often you know, scantily educated uh, men who go down and take over the administrative burdens uh, of rural countryside units. All right, landlords have been around for thousands of years. Okay, and they are gone. They are gone. If they were lucky... If they were lucky, they became a poor peasant and lost everything and would be beaten up by everyone else. They'd be a ritual scapegoat every single time some new Maoist political campaign rolls into town. That's if you're lucky. Heck, I don't think that's very lucky. I think it's more lucky to have the other fate, execution. Because that's pretty shitty just to be kept alive, to be beaten up every single time there's a political campaign and be blamed for everything. Okay, over one million landlords will be executed during land reform. Don't think... This is a tea party. Mao Zedong very famously said, revolution is not a tea party. People will die. Blood will be shed. One over one million landlords learned that very, very quickly after the Chinese Communist Party came to power. So what do they do? They go in there and they need to identify the social classes in the countryside. And here's what they come up with. Communist st 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 statisticians. Analysts go out into the countryside and they say, based on our calculations, this is what we figured out. Landlords represent about 2% of the population in the countryside, and yet they own and rent out about 30% of the land. We also then have, below them, rich peasants. Rich peasants are about 4% of the population. They own some land and they hire labor because they can't farm all their land just with their family. They have to actually hire laborers. Incidentally, Mao Zedong's own family will come from a rich peasant background. Rich peasants are about 4% of the population, they say. Pr pretty rare still to find a rich peasant. And don't be thinking about rich peasant as, ooh, they're rich. No, no, no. Rich relative to the other peasants. If you or I were to be transported and go back into the countryside and try to live, you know, as a rich peasant, we wouldn't last two days. Okay? It's still incredibly crude, filthy, deprived life by our standards today. Okay, it's just relative to middle peasants and poor peasants and landless peasants, which are the other social classes that were identified. Middle peasants were by far seen as the largest social class, economic class in the countryside. 80%, they said, 80% of the entire rural population is a middle peasant. They have a minimum amount of land to subsist on, and they neither 
rent their own labor out to others or hire other people to work on their land. They have just enough to farm themselves and survive so long as there are no droughts or floods, which obviously are going to happen. Life in the countryside is very precarious, as we've seen in some of the late imperial uh, China episodes that we've talked about. And then finally, you have poor peasants and landless peasants. About 14% of the countryside, they said. These people generally have no land, and they have to rent their labor out to the middle, uh, not the middle, the rich peasants or the landlords. Okay? So what they say, they say, we're going to, uh, we, we're going to eliminate the landlords entirely. That's 2% of the population, but 30% of all the land. And then give the land of that landlord class to the poor and landless peasants at the bottom of the social hierarchy. The bottom 14% will get 30% of the land redistributed among them. Okay? And within a year and a half, nearly half of all arable land in all of China is redistributed. Roughly 60% of all peasants got something during land reform. Something. All right? That's a good way to create goodwill among the population. More than half of everyone got something that they didn't have before. Everyone likes to get something, especially if you have almost nothing. <laughs> right? What this creates, then, is a massive class of small peasant capitalist proprietors. Remember, Socialism, communism, nationalization of the grain market has not happened yet. This is not socialism by any measure. Okay? You are giving more capital, more resources to people who didn't have them before. That's it. That's all you're doing. And so for the first four years or so of the communist state, 1950 to 1953, this is often seen as sort of a honeymoon period for China's peasants. The party is popular. The country is at peace. There are no major rural disruptions. Most peasants now have their own farm or their own land to farm on. That's unprecedented. Okay. Um, and they have the freedom to invest whatever surplus that they are able to cultivate out of their plots of land. They can reinvest that surplus as desired. They can reinvest it in the private market, in sideline industries. They can make candles, ropes, peanut oil at home, shoes, and sell them on the market and take that profit and then further invest in the wealth of their family. This is not capitalism. This is not communism by any means whatsoever. This is capitalism, and the peasants love it. Next step. Oh, boy, next step. Time to implement socialism. Okay, you fattened up Hansel and Gretel. Now it's time to eat them. You need to achieve economic equality. At least that's what you're going to say you're going to do. Land reform was great for peasants, but only because it's not socialism. Peasants are making money and reinvesting in themselves privately. That's that wasteful individual surplus, not benefiting the country as a whole, benefiting individuals and their families. The benefits to the state are only as political investment in the future, creating goodwill among a large segment of the population that you're later going to be trying to, to exploit. Okay, the benefits are not yet economic to the state. The grain yield from 1949 to 1954, the yield of grain in China increases about 2.7% per, per year. 2.7% increase in grain yield. How much does the population increase over this exact same time period? 2.2% each year. Okay, so grain is outpacing population growth, absolutely, but only by 0.5%. That's it. It's good. But it's not great. And at this rate, it's going to take a heck of a long time to catch up with the advanced industrial powers of the world. 
okay, without some way of transforming agricultural production further, it appears that the natural limits of a peaceful countryside without natural disasters have peaked, have been attained. Peasant happiness, unfortunately, does not serve the nation's needs as those nation needs are interpreted by the Chinese Communist Party. How in the world is China going to get to the point of self-sufficiency in launching satellites, developing nuclear bombs, building uh, building railroads, building factories, uh, laying down electrical power grids, exploiting oil fields? In short, how are they going to succeed at heavy industry? Steel, chemicals, metals, that is heavy industry. China's heavy industry in 1949, was less than the heavy industry rate of Russia in 1914, less than that of British India in 1947. So there's a lot of ground to make up. Very, very expensive. Heavy industry costs a hell of a lot of money. How are you going to pay for it all? You have no Western friends. You have very little Soviet investment. The answer? We've already talked about it. Primitive accumulation. Squeeze the peasants, sell all that grain abroad, and use the profit to finance industrialization in urban factories. Okay, so in 1953, the grain market is nationalized. You can no longer sell grain on the private market. You must sell all grain to the state at fixed, artificially low rates. This is the first major sign of discontentment from the peasants. They say, this is outright theft. You are taking our grain away from us. And many of them start to withhold their grain and sell it privately, and risk, you know, punishment if you get caught. Okay? But the state is basically saying, no, we're going to get all that grain, all that surplus, we're taking every last ounce of it at the lowest price possible, heck, below market rates, and we're going to sell it on the international market to get the cash we need to build a nuclear bomb. Okay? What most people want, all right, this is sort of the, the tension between these priorities, the state that feels like it has a grievance for towards formal imperialists who have invaded their country, those sort of states are going to emphasize heavy industry, because heavy industry is how you create aircraft carriers and fighter jets and steel and chemicals and all that sort of stuff. The things that, in the aggregate, make you a powerful country uh, vis-a-vis other powerful countries in the international arena. Okay, But what most people actually want is things that improve their daily lives, if you're not in the party, if you're not a policymaker, both in the cities and in the countryside. Uh, We want the products of light industry. That's the difference between heavy industry and light industry. Light industry, what is light industry? Light industry is, uh, why can't I say it? Toothbrushes, toothpaste, toilet paper, soap, okay? Hygienic projects, bicycles, all right? Doormats, fans, whatever. Mosquito nets. Those are the products of light industry. And they are the things that make our daily lives comfortable. Okay? Light industry, however, is seen as a wasteful expenditure by the early communist state that is playing catch-up modernization. It makes people happy, but it does not increase, it does not uh, shrink the gap between you and the countries you're trying to catch up with in the international arena. Heavy industry is very abstract. It's very abstract to the daily, you know, your daily citizen. Light industry is not. But heavy industry is where the communist state's going to go. The first five-year plan from 1953 to 1957 reveals the PRC's state priorities. 
Okay, and it says we're going to have an overwhelmingly lopsided emphasis on developing heavy industry at the expense of the peasants. 89% of all state capital was slated to be invested in heavy industry. Okay. Zhou Enlai, Premier Zhou Enlai, one of the top figures in the, in the, the Chinese Communist Party, openly says in 1953, you know what? The peasants are going to have to sacrifice temporarily for the cities. <laughs> it's not going to be temporarily. It's going to be a long, long time for most of those peasants. Okay, so the peasants need to produce more grain for the state to take. What does communist ideology as applied to the rural sector tell the CCP to do? Eliminate the capitalist waste of individual profit. Work together, pool resources, produce more. Bigger is better. Okay, that's a shibboleth among communist leaders. Bigger is always better. So, the party starts off by encouraging gradual, voluntary transition to cooperatives, cooperative farms, cooperative farming units, co-ops. Right? Some of us are familiar with co-ops. If you're of a hippie-ish disposition, or if you grew up in places where these things were, you know, um, uh, seen to be, be desirable, you may have uh, uh, frequented a co-op grocery store, okay, in which the idea is that all the people who shop there contribute some sort of resources to that co-op, uh, keeping prices lower, they, and they have more of a say in the governance of this co-op and what sort of things they're, that they're going to carry. All right, that's sort of the idea here as well, although they're going to take it to a much more insane level. All right, the first stage of these co-ops are referred to as mutual aid teams. Mutual aid teams. What is a mutual aid team? Remember, you're being encouraged to join a mutual aid team on a voluntary basis initially. This is all voluntary initially. It's not going to be later, but it is now. Well, a mutual aid team, you pool the resources of five to six households, and each person reaps the fruits of just what they put in. If you have more wealth, and you don't feel like working, or you're older, or and you have physical handicaps, you can choose to invest uh, your economic capital. Hey, we've got some savings sitting around. All right, we'd like to invest some money in this co-op, but I don't really want to work, so I'm not going to work. I'm just going to invest my money. I have money. I'm going to use it. And someone else says, we don't have much money, but I'm a young, strong man and woman or whatnot. We're going to go out and work in the fields. Okay? And then you get to reap the surplus of these, these mutual aid teams based on what you invested. And I think if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, well, yeah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you have the ability to correct me if I'm wrong unless you've studied this thing uh, specifically. Um, if you contribute money, you will be able to uh, take a little bit more of the surplus than those who contributed labor alone. All right, so it's still unequal. It's still going to favor people who are already wealthier than others. Regardless, mutual aid teams are quite popular. Quite popular. Five to six households, you're, you're going to know everyone that you come together with. Five to six households, they're not going to be strangers. Okay, and people like having the control over what they put in. I decided to put in my labor. I decided to put in 25% labor, 75% economic capital, cash. And then I get what I reap at the end. I feel good about that. And it was voluntary. No one forced me to do this. Mutual aid teams are quite popular. Okay. Then the next stage. The next stage. Mutual aid teams, by the way, are before the nationalization of the grain market. The next stage. Low-level cooperatives. Okay. Low-level cooperatives are about 25 households. Can be a lot more strangers here, or at least people that you don't know too well. Still part capitalist, but you're increasingly part socialist now. There are going to be limits on the amount of land or wealth or labor that you contribute to the low-level co-op. 
and the quota of labor is going to be higher. They're trying to balance out the inequality here between people who already have pre-existing economic wealth and those who don't. And they're going to say, everyone, no matter how wealthy you are as a peasant, everyone now has to contribute X amount of labor. All right? You can't just fall back on your money and do no labor whatsoever. Okay? Um, this is about as far as the peasants are willing to go on a volunteer basis. And even then, some of them don't quite like this. You're working with some strangers. You don't have complete freedom. Okay? And especially when the nationalization of the grain market hits, it hits around this time. The incentive to join any sort of co-op is diminished because what is the incentive anymore to try to produce more if you're going to be forced to sell that grain to the state at a fixed below market rate? Now it's after this, 1953, 54, 55, that you get increased pressure to join high-level, village-wide co-ops. Okay, The state incentive here is that it's easier to tax one large unit than lots of small ones. And larger units should produce more anyways. The peasants are told if you join these high-level co-ops, well, they're not being told if anymore. Now they're increasingly saying, you're joining this. We're all moving. This is the way of the future. Get on board sooner rather than later and be regarded more favorably if you are an earlier, uh, an earlier joiner to this enterprise. They tell the peasants, you know what? If we join these larger high-level co-ops, we will be able to buy for the village Technology that would have been unheard of before. Tractors. Right? Tractors, that's the mirage that all peasants are going to be incentivized with. If we can get a tractor out here, imagine how much we could raise the productivity of the land. But can you buy a tractor all by yourself? Hell no. Can your neighbor? Hell no. Can six families together afford a tractor? Hell no. Can 25 families together uh, 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 buy, buy a tractor? No. This is really expensive technology. Oftentimes it has to be imported from abroad, maybe the Soviet Union. Okay? You need to get, you know, hundreds of families, maybe an entire village is going to become uh, uh, joined into a co-op. And all of you are going to be contributing a high amount of labor and very little economic ca uh, capital to this enterprise. And yeah, the state's going to take most of that surplus away. But we promise you, we will invest that surplus in tractors that will ultimately be in your best interest. So it's an abstract incentive. Some of the peasants are probably going to be able to kind of see this off in the future. And they do want tractors. They do want tractors. But it's also kind of abstract. It doesn't go back into your personal household. And for the time being, you're still poor. You're still poor. All right, now, what we're moving towards eventually is we're moving towards the largest unit, which is the commune. That's where you get the idea of communism. And that's going to be an entire county, perhaps 100,000 people joined together. Okay, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. But that's where we're moving towards, all right? By 1955, peasants are not, by and large, joining the high-level co-ops voluntarily. Only 15% of all peasants in the countryside have joined a voluntary co-op, whether it's low-level or high-level. From this point forward, the debate is over speed. Not goals. Everyone agrees on the eventual goals, at least among the policy-making elite. Everyone knows eventually we're going towards communism. The only question is, is that communism 300 years away, or is it three years away? Right? That's the debate. Most sensible, rational people in the Communist Party and the Soviet advisors 
who, by the way, have already undergone land reform and collectivization, and they knew it was a disaster because they did it too fast. They're basically advocating a slower pace. Okay, they're advocating a slower pace. And they are encouraged to advocate this slower pace against Mao Zedong's wishes for as fast as possible. They're encouraged to dissent from Mao in the wake of the uh, 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 speeches against Stalin that Nikita Khrushchev delivered in, in, in private, but were eventually leaked to the rest of the communist world in 1953 when Stalin died. Stalin died in 1953. It enabled the end of the Korean War when he died, uh, but it also started a process of what is known as de-Stalinization in the Soviet Union. And his successors began to criticize him. They said, you know what? It's okay to advocate ideas and policies other than what this authoritarian leader himself had been advocating. And in China, this has a very profound effect on many of the members of the Communist Party. If they, when they start to think, you know what, Mao's idea is about going as fast as possible, um, what sort of basis does Mao have to make these judgments? Is he an economic specialist? Does he have training in uh, economics? No. Mao doesn't know shit about economics. Okay, when he was young, he studied history and literature. He loved to read history and, you know, classical Chinese literature and, and the histories of various dynasties. Right? He's not an economist. In terms of policymaking, Mao is probably one of the worst people you can imagine to be making economic policy. And so those people in the party who are saying, you know what, Mao's our chairman, he's great, he won the revolution, we idolize him, but should he really be in charge of, of, of setting the pace of collectivization and getting us to communism? And so this debate rages on. But Mao thinks in order, in order to, to, to maintain his position atop the party as chairman, he needs to have revolutionary success after revolutionary success because his only source of political capital, the only thing he can fall back on and say, I am truly an expert here and no one can argue about this, is when he's talking about a revolution, when he's advocating revolution, when he's advocating doing things faster and more impressively than anyone's ever done before and overturning society, going beyond the limits of man's, mankind's natural abilities. That's when Mao is alone at the top. He's peerless. No one can challenge him. Because he just has to look back at his resume and say, <clears throat> who was responsible for leading the Chinese Communist Party to power against all odds over 20 years? <clears throat> it was me, not you. And no one's going to dispute that. So in order to maintain his relevancy, Mao has to advocate revolution. And in terms of economic policy, which he knows shit about, in terms of economic policy, it just means faster, 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 faster. That is revolution as translated to economic policy in the countryside during the 1950s. So Mao suffers a little setback. Peasants did not want to voluntarily join low-level or even high-level uh, high or even low-level cooperatives. So the Chinese Communist Party convenes its Eighth Party Congress in September 1956. And they say this so-called little leap, as opposed to the Great Leap later on, this little leap, it's kind of a failure, wasn't it? Okay, we need to roll back some of these policies. The peasants didn't like it. We need to recalibrate. They realized that, you know, that we were fattening up them up like Hansel and Gretel, and before the witch could throw them in the boiling kettle, they ran outside into the forest, and we got to capture them again. Not a good idea. So multi-village collectives were abolished, putting several villages together into one economic unit. Uh -uh, that's not going to work. They abolished those. 
said, okay, we're going to be less pressure to collectivize. And they promulgated a new second five-year plan. And I said, all right, this time it's not going to be so overwhelmingly focused on heavy industry. It's going to be more of a balance between light and heavy industry. We're going to have a more moderated and gradual economic advance. It's a classic expression of what was by then a conservative, bureaucratic Soviet approach. This is a major victory for the party bureaucracy. Okay, they have, At the party congress, they actually criticize Mao as saying he's made his first mistake since the long march in the 1930s. Wow, Mao made a mistake. And they delete the importance, the phrase, talking about the importance of Mao Zedong thought, Mao Zedong Sisiang, from the Constitution. Mao doesn't like this. He says, you know what they're doing? This is the result of de-Stalinization. Now, Mao himself hated Stalin. He thought Stalin always worked against him, never supported him, was always trying to support someone else against him, and then gave him the cold shoulder in 1950 when he went to Moscow and gave China almost nothing in economic assistance after 1949. But even though he, he loathes Stalin, he admires him for his ability to accumulate an enormous amount of political power and be an incredibly strong dictator, which Mao wants for himself, obviously. <laughs> okay? And so he's this smacks of de-Stalinization. For the rest of his life, Mao is going to be working against what he sees as rivals who are trying to push him into the background. Okay, this is the central tension of the entire 27 years of the Mao era, whether it's cultural policy, economic policy, political policy. Okay, is Mao is no longer relevant in an era of gradual economic advancement. His, his expertise was in waging revolution. He won. But now the revolution's over and our priorities shift to things that he doesn't know anything about. But he's not going to willingly give up all the power and adulation that he has accumulated over the past 30 years of his career. So he's going to force himself and into economic policy and still try to drive the terms of the debate in his favor. All right, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, the, the, the roots of these things are all right here. Mao is livid in private. After this Eighth Party Congress. In November 1956, he says, Some comrades think that everything in the Soviet Union is perfect. That even their farts are fragrant. Mao had a lovely, earthy way of speaking. He loved to throw in things and take pride in his own peasant backgrounds, even though he was from a rich peasant background and not a poor peasant background. Um, and he often had very colorful ways of speech, you know. Farts and excrement and all these sort of things uh, were littered throughout his quotes. But it's harder now for Mao to impose his will on the party. The little leap had failed. Khrushchev's speech had encouraged people to dissent from the preeminent leader of the party. How can Mao regain leverage in his own party? Well, the answer is the Hundred Flowers Movement. The Hundred Flowers Movement originated in early 1956 to encourage educated people to work for the party. Intellectuals were suspicious. Are we going to be welcome to, to, to join forces with the new communist government? Are they, are they going to solicit our advice? We, we, we're really educated. We have a lot of experience. Do they care about the opinions and advice of experts like us? And so in early 1956, in order to sort of gain the trust of some of these intellectuals, the party uh, disseminates the slogan, Let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend. It's an ancient phrase that goes back to the Warring States period and the age of all those philosophers and whatnot. It's not, it's not a phrase that they invented. They're reviving an ancient slogan for new political purposes. And the message was, the party condones intellectual freedom. Come work for us. We need homegrown technical experts for national industrialization. It's a low-key campaign, originally, and Mao doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. 
All right, the intellectuals are rightly suspicious. They fear retaliation. They think it's a trap. All right, they're intellectuals. They're smart. They get it. And they're right. Eventually, it's going to turn into a trap. Okay, but they think it's a trap. Most of the party cadres are against this as well. They don't like the idea of soliciting criticism and feedback and input from people who aren't even party members. Most of these intellectuals are not party members. Saying, why do we even have a policy like this? Why are we inviting outside members of society to give us advice and lecture us? That shouldn't be happening. Mao, in late 56, early 57, he's finding himself increasingly sidelined. He's livid at what happened at the 8th Party Congress in 56. He sees this campaign and he says, this is how I'm going to get back in power. He revives and injects more vigor into the Hundred Flowers campaign, which was sort of moribund and on life support back then. Most of the party elite didn't even like it and they were trying to suppress it. And he says, you know what? We need to revive the Hundred Flowers campaign. We need to make this a mainstream campaign. Give it a lot of publicity. Put a lot of our political capital behind it. Okay, he says, look what happened in the Soviet Union. Okay, look what happened in the communist world in Eastern Europe. In 1956, you had the uprisings in Hungary and Poland, and the Soviet Union had to send in tanks to suppress them. He said, you know why? Because there was no mechanism of airing grievances among the people. We're not all going to agree. We need to have a mechanism of letting people feel like their voices are being heard. So the 100 Flowers, he says, he's being disingenuous, by the way. He just wants to get the party on board. He says, 100 Flowers campaign will allow everyone to vent their, you know, vent steam. And will prevent another Hungary or Poland insurrection occurring in China. And so in March 1957, he goes even further and he says, and he gives a very famous speech, which is printed on the front page of the People's Daily, in which he says, let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend. We want to hear from you. And there will be no repercussions. And so a few wary intellectuals send some letters to the editors, write an op-ed, they're publishing the papers, and Mao wants to encourage these tentative steps, so he approves, he defends the first criticism, says, yes, this is exactly what we want to hear. Whoa, well, that, the effect of that is huge. People say, wow, he's really genuine. He really does want to hear from us. Isn't this a wonderful guy? What's Mao doing? What is he doing? All right, I said he's being disingenuous. He absolutely is. He's a master politician, okay? He's, he's... A horrible human being. He's responsible for the deaths of millions and millions of people. But hey, he's a master politician. You got to hand it to the guy. Okay? What he's doing is he's sidestepping formal channels of leadership within the party. He's trying to align himself with the quote unquote the people who the party claims to represent. And he wants to criticize the party bureaucracy from outside the bureaucracy. Okay? He totally thinks, this is it, this is, this is what he's trying to do. He totally thinks. That when he solicits criticisms and advice from uh, outside the party among intellectuals, that they're going to be on his side. That they're all going to be saying that the party bureaucracy has gotten too staid, um, they're going too slow, China's better than this, the Chinese nation is spectacular, we can move much faster. He thinks they're going to be on his side and they're going to give him ammunition to go back against his, his opponents in, 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 in the Communist Party and go faster towards communes. He wants to revive the little leap. Okay. This is his response to the September 1956 Congress. If he can't win within the system, he goes outside the system. And Lord, he's going to do this several times. Okay, he's going to do this most tragically in the Cultural Revolution in which he goes outside the system and brings on board millions and millions of young kids. <laughs> of young kids to help him destroy his enemies in the party. 
So in May 1957, the intellectuals, emboldened by Mao's defense of the first criticisms in March and April, they respond in force. And oh, how do they respond in force? Mao had no idea what was coming. He was totally blindsided. What did they demand? Constitutional freedoms. They said, we need freedom of speech, freedom of press, feed of freedom of residence. You keep on telling us where we can live and assigning us to jobs. We have no freedom to move around the country. They criticized the privileged lives of party cadres who are living it up. They say, we don't like par suffocating party oversight and these ridiculous political campaigns that you're constantly forcing us to involve ourselves in. The Communist Party shouldn't have a political monopoly throughout the country. They criticize everything. Mao and everyone in the party is floored. They're flabbergasted. Oh my God. We thought we were pretty popular. But these intellectuals are really taking us to town. These are wide-ranging critiques. And in June, there's violence. Some of the students even occupy university offices and hold officials hostage. Well, Mao apparently miscalculated. So now he's going to turn it to his advantage. Okay? He miscalculated that they were going to be on his side and he was going to be able to use the intellectuals as ammunition against his own enemies, but he's still going to be able to salvage, salvage the situation for himself. It's a cruel sal salvage, but it's a salvage. His response, he initiates the anti-rightist campaign in June 1957. This will go on for a year. Mao hoped that the criticism would shake up the party in his favor. Instead, the criticism of the Hundred Flowers movement questioned the right of the CCP to rule China at all. Totally not cool. Once the degree of discontentment is clear, Mao decides to strike back. And he tells his party members who are livid with him, how could you do this? How could you openly subject us to the criticism of our enemies in society? Outside the party, they aren't even party members for God's sake. He says, let it continue. This is my plan all along. I'm exposing poisonous weeds. He says, this is my plan all along. I was always going to do this. I'm exposing the poisonous weeds. And the anti-rightist campaign kicks off in June 1957. And Mao says, the people abused their privilege. They created the specter of anarchy. A different version of Mao's speech from March 57 is republished in the People's Daily. And this one sounds very different. <laughs> and it justifies the crackdown that Mao entrusts to Deng Xiaoping. This is going to be Deng Xiaoping's first big major political task that gives him a little bit bigger of a profile within the party. Deng Xiaoping will be tasked with the anti-rightist movement crackdown. How many people? will be cracked down upon, 550,000 people will be labeled as a rightist. You do not want to be labeled as a rightist in a communist society. A leftist is great. You want to be on the left side of the political spectrum. Okay? And there's, the, there's going to be a saying during the Mao years. Leftist errors can be forgiven, but rightist errors are a crime. All right? Rightists are criminals. They are traitors to the party. Leftist, oh, you know, too much leftist enthusiasm can be forgiven. It may lead to disaster. It will lead to disaster. But those, those are crimes of passion, right? Those are sins of passion. But to be a rightist is to be treasonous against the party itself. So being labeled a rightist is a very serious thing during the Mao years. And these people who are labeled as rightists, widespread suicides, imprisonment, or being sent to labor reform for sometimes up to two decades. I say these things, and it sounds so casual as I say them. I don't want them to sound casual. Each one of these is incredibly sad and momentous. Suicide. People killed themselves. Thousands of people killed themselves because they were labeled a rightist, lost their job, lost their salary, shunned from their work unit, from society. 
criticized every day in struggle sessions, imprisonment, sent to jail, where conditions are not all that great, or sent off to labor reform. Can you imagine being sent off to labor reform? It's backbreaking work. You'll probably die there too, but if you don't, you're going to come back a broken man, spiritually and physically. And that labor reform could last for a heck of a long time. Okay? So here's Mao's perverse political genius, however. He then extends the crackdown to party cadres. Most of the party wanted him to embark on the anti-rightus campaign because they didn't like being criticized by people who weren't members of the party. But then Mao takes it one step further and extends the crackdown to party cadres. And he says, anyone who criticized the 1955 Little Leap is now in trouble. You guys are 10 steps short of being labeled a rightist. Zhou Enlai, who always knows which ways the wind is blowing and is the ultimate sycophant to Mao Zedong, performs his own self-criticism instantaneously, saying that Mao is, quote, the personification of truth. Joe knows which side his, his bread is buttered on, and he will never betray or cross Mao. A million party members are going to be attacked in various forms. This is, even though the Hundred Flowers Movement and Anti-Rightist Campaign initially began outside the party, Mao moved it toward the party and used it to attack his own enemies, and thus achieves his goal. He steps out of the party and uses criticisms to be directed back at the party. Now no one, either inside or outside the party, is willing to oppose him in fear of being labeled a rightist. This is where you get your plunge into utopia, the tragic plunge into utopia. Mao is now free to promote a new agenda without fear of dissent. What agenda do you think he's, gonna, he's going to advocate? All right, quick pop quiz. Obviously, he's going to go back to what he was already doing beforehand as fast as possible to get to communes. He says, quote, anyone who opposes rash advance is 50 meters away from being a rightist. Rash advance. He's saying rash advance is a good thing to, to, to go forth and try to achieve things in a rash manner. He's openly saying we need to be a little crazy here. <laughs> okay. Too, much, too many numbers, too much calculations, too much conservatism, too much intellectual, you know, you know, waiting around and whatnot and looking at all of our numbers and making sure everything's just perfect. We can't wait for that. We're better than that. Let's draw upon our spiritual reserves of the Chinese nation. We can do so much better than this. And he says, we're going to surpass Britain in 15 years in steel production. Okay, that's an absurd claim. There's no way China's going to do that. But he says they're going to, and then later on he'll say he'll 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 uh, downsize that to just three years. And he says, "Here's how we're going to start our advance to communism in just a few years, the Great Leap Forward. We achieved socialism with my little leap in 1956. Some members of the party didn't acknowledge that they were rightist traitors from inside the party, and we purged them now, and now we're going to continue from a little leap to a great leap. We're going to overcome." the technological backwardness of China and our economic constraints through sheer human willpower and labor. Okay, we're going to substitute labor for capital. We're going to substitute boot camp training, boot camp training in the field for professional technocrats. And as he's traveling around the country, he lets these wishes be known that he wants to move faster and faster. And this is what a good politician does. They never put their name indelibly associated with a very clear policy. You never do that if you're a politician. Because then if that policy fails, you go down with it. What he does is he gets other people to advocate policies for him. And then he just says, that sounds like a good idea. 
And then everyone else says, oh, the chairman said, said that sounded like a good idea. Let's all strive to do that and gain his favor. But then when that fails in turn, the underlings go down, not necessarily the guy at the top. His prestige will be docked a little bit, but he's not going to be totally taken down by that. That's what a good politician anywhere in the world at any time period does. Okay, you have fall guys, essentially. And so Mao travels the country on a special train, and he uh, stops at very uh, various provinces where the local party secretary comes out, and they say, I hear this is what you want us to do. You, you want us to go faster and faster, come up with ingenious methods to increase agricultural production through sheer human willpower, not necessarily through, you know, the, you know, uh, gradual investment in technology and whatnot. And they say, look what we've done. We've created communes here. And look what our commune looks like. And it's all staged. They make sure it all looks great for Mao because they're trying to impress him. And Mao, one of these places, stops by and he goes, Renmin Gong Shuhao, although he says it in his Hunanese accent, which I can't really uh, re reproduce for you here. Um, basically, translation, people's communes are good. That quote, Renmin Gong Shuhao, gets reproduced on the front page of all the newspapers. And suddenly, all the party secretary is saying, oh, people's communes are good. We need to create communes. That's what Mao wants to see. I don't want to be labeled a rightist. I don't want to be purged like everyone was purged in 1957. Let's do whatever we have to do. And they pool all the resources. These communes sometimes can be 100,000 people, a million people, a whole county put together, all resources pooled together. They create communal dormitories, mess halls, communal nurseries. They say, we're going to free the women so they can work in the fields and men can work elsewhere. So men won't be working in the fields. Bad decision. And they take the entire labor workforce of men, take them away from the fields and put them on building these huge dam projects or irrigation projects in places that have no business having major irrigation projects being built and where it's going to fail. Why is it going to fail? Because you don't have anyone who knows what the hell they're doing. Because everyone is an illiterate, revolutionary cadre who is trying to overcome the natural constraints of nature, not by your education, but simply by sheer will. It's not going to turn out well. It's not going to turn out well. And all the parties start to release statistics to encourage what they refer to as human Sputniks. Human Sputniks. And they say, our projections for this year, based on having pooled together all the resources in, 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 in our province, are, you know, through the roof. We're going to produce X amount of grain. That's twice as much grain as we produced last year. The next county will say, we're going to produce four times the amount of grain. And not only that, we're producing four times the amount of grain that we normally produce, even while we've taken all of our men out of the field and had them working on dams that are going to help us irrigate our, 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 our crops even better. Mal says, hey, uh, why don't you guys plant, should, uh, you know, two crops of grain instead of uh, the one crop of grain that you already do. Now, the only people, the, the guys who know what they're actually doing say, <clears throat> well, actually, the soils here, unless we get new technological chemical fertilizers, the soils here don't, don't actually support two harvests in a year. Um, well, that person gets labeled a rightist. The guy who comes in and says, hell yeah, we can do that. We can do three crops a year. That's the guy who gets promoted. Right, you can see the snowball effect here. People are working all day long, 18-hour days. They work through the night. They say, how are we going to catch up to British, uh, Britain steel production? We're going to create backyard furnaces. Everyone create a furnace out in the countryside, and all, all the metal, your bed frames, your door handles, your pots, your pans, throw it into the furnace, and that's going to be another way. By sheer human will, we're going to be able to catch up with steel production. This is a disaster. 
that all, uh, all that results is totally useless pig iron. And then you've lost all of your pots and pans and everything else that was made of metal. The massive irrigation works and dam projects all fail. They all fail. Okay? The worst part of it all is that the leaders in Beijing and Mao, they believe the false numbers. They believe the false projections. Because they want to believe them. He needs to believe them. He staked his entire policy-making initiative on this success of the Great Leap Forward. So here's the tragedy. They believe the false numbers. Or they want to believe the false numbers. And they continue to collect grain in accordance with the new numbers that are being falsified. Okay? That's where the big tragedy is going to occur. And when the state comes in and collects the grain in accordance with what you said you were going to be able to produce, what's left for the people to eat? Almost nothing. Because who is going to tell the grain collector, you know what? It was all a big lie. We totally failed. We have nothing to give you. Not the party secretary. Uh-uh. He's going to give what he said he was going to give, or as close to it as he possibly can. Peasants be damned. And that's exactly what happens. And oftentimes, because you've had all the men taken off the fields, often these ridiculous, ir massive irrigation projects and dam projects and whatnot, much of the crop uh, lied spoiled in the field. There was no one left to harvest it. Yeah, sometimes the women went out and did it as well, but there were also a lot of work that they had to do, and they got drawn away on other things as well. And this is an unbelievable tragedy. The harvest was just fine in 1958 and 59. And yet, no one had anything to eat all of a sudden. The grain rotted in the fields. And that which did not rot in the fields was taken away by the state grain collectors for primitive accumulation to sell on the international market. And so people start dying, starving to death as the state is selling grain on the international market. And, in order to, and the peasants know that this isn't working very early on. And they start, you know, resisting. But Mao isn't able to see that resistance. Almost none of the top party leaders are able to see that resistance because the local provincial party secretaries don't want them to see it. And when they visit, they create model staged villages to make it look like everything is prosperous. And so in their defense, if we want to defend them at all, it's actually kind of hard for the top leaders to see what's going on. But why is it hard for them to see what's going on? Because they've created a political environment in which no one's going to tell the truth. So they still get blamed in the end. Okay. And, you know, recent works, recent scholarship, people who have actually started to gain access to some of the archives for the Great Leap Forward, they found that it was brutal coercion in the countryside. Once the peasants realized this is total shit, this isn't working, you guys don't know what the hell you're doing, I don't want to do this anymore, and they started resisting, very violent coercion was used to force them to keep working. Whipping, stabbing, all right, imprisonment, beatings. And in these contexts of deprivation, horrible things happened. When people started starving, they resorted to cannibalism. They did. 1950s in China, people were eating other people. This is ridiculous. Okay? People, women would be forced to prostitute themselves to those who still had power, party secretaries and whatnot, and their henchmen to get a little bit of food. Rapes are widespread. Right? It's a total disaster. Now, the party elite does start getting some inkling that things aren't all that great. Some of the cadres have made trips down 
to their home villages and they've gotten a glimpse of the real scene behind the staged model picture that the local party secretaries are giving to the central elite. Mao himself also does that. He goes to his home village of Shaoshan in Hunan and he says, it's the only place I'm going to get the truth. And he talks to some of his old family members there in the old village and he finds out, yeah, this isn't going too well. It's not going too well. There's a lot of lies being circulated. And remember, most of the peasants, they don't blame Mao. They think that Mao is infallible. Of course, he would never do this to us. It must be due to treacherous servants, treacherous party members who are lower down the rung. And if only Mao knew what was going on, boy, he'd save us. That was a widespread sentiment. So by late, 50, by late 1958, there are signs that there are some trouble. They don't know the worst of it, but there, there is some awareness in Beijing that things aren't going all that well. And there's a party conference at the city of Wuhan in December 1958. And the party starts to vote to say, you know what, let's uh, not go so fast on this great leap forward. All right, we don't want it. Maybe rash advance in these utopian dreams aren't the best slogans. And Mao decides, okay, I'm going to give up the head of state. He's both the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. That's the real powerful position. But he's also the head of the government. Um, and, he, and he says it's sort of a token concession. All right, all right, I'll give up my head of state. He was already going to do that anyways. And he gives it to uh, Liu Shaoqi. Liu Shaoqi, the, most, the second most powerful man in government. Uh, Mao's going to have him uh, arrange, arrange the conditions that lead to Liu Shaoqi's death during the Cultural Revolution. But for now, Liu Shaoqi takes over as head of state. And Mao complains after December 1958, they treated me like a dead ancestor. You know, all these wonderful quotes. Treated me like a dead ancestor. Soviet farts are better. At one point when he's trying to criticize all the people who are saying, go slow, go slow. We can't go, you know, get to communes this fast. He criticizes them and says that they're like women with bound feet. And that's the ultimate insult. Not only is he saying that men are women uh, in a patriarchal society, he's also saying bound feet. That's from the old feudal society, right? Like you're all like women with bound feet. The Chinese nation is better than that. And by summer 1959, the communes are hollow administrative structures. Communal mess halls have been abandoned. Peasants just openly rebel and start tilling their private plots and recreating a black private market. The party is divided between Maoist radicals who are trying to curry favor with him and the conservatives, many of whom actually have some education in economics and know that this is a total mess. Some sort of crisis is clear to all. So the party convenes a new conference known as the Lushan Conference in July 1959. This is a major turning point. Minister of Defense Peng Dehuai has himself made a trip to the countryside and learned some of the truth of what's going on. So at the conference, in which is supposed to be a conference in which open discussion, open frank discussion is held among party elites on how they could mitigate the worst excesses of the Great Leap Forward and consolidate the gains and make it still a wonderful Great Leap Forward, Peng Dehuai decides he needs to write a private letter to Mao to tell him what he's seen and make sure Mao knows this is serious. Seriously bad stuff is happening in the countryside. Peng Dehuai, he's known as one of the most frank, honest people in the party, one of the few people who is willing to confront Mao. He writes this letter, handwritten private letter, gives it to Mao. Mao reads it and immediately turns it into a political tactic. He says this is a conspiracy to push him aside as chairman of the party. He takes Peng Dehuai's letter has copies made, disseminates that letter to all the cadres at the conference, and orders everyone to criticize. Well, he gets up and criticizes it himself, and then that sets the tone. Again, this is Mao has come down on a criticism of the only person who has been willing to openly criticize the Great Leap Forward to Mao. And Mao famously says here, 
If you guys don't want to follow me, I'll go back to the countryside and I'll form my, a new guerrilla army, a new red army, and I'll overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. Well, with the gauntlet being thrown down like that, how do you think everyone's going to respond? Peng Dehuai is purged from his position as Minister of Defense. Lin Biao will take his place. Lin Biao, get used to that name, going to play a major role in the Cultural Revolution. Peng Dehuai's followers are purged. And at the end of the conference, August 26, 1959, the party adopts a revolution, reaffirming the general correctness of the Great Leap Forward, restoring the communal mess halls, and criticizing right opportunists like Peng Dehuai. It's exactly the same as what happened after the anti-rightist movement. Now who's going to criticize? There was an opportunity to roll back the excesses of the Great Leap Forward. It was only one year in. The mass starvations and deaths had not happened yet. And now it's going to be full-fledged. All the things that were going on in 58, the inflated, quo the in 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 inflated quotas, diverting the workforce from the farms, backyard steel furnaces, it's all going to re-accelerate to a ridiculous degree. The result is that the Great Leap Forward will continue tragically for two more full years. Peasants, many of them are in open sabotage and they're being met with violence to do what they're being told to do, which they know is going to result in their death. The final numbers almost defy description. It is now thought that as, as few as 20 million, but perhaps as many as 40 million people died unnatural deaths that would otherwise not have occurred if the Great Leap Forward did not occur. Think of that. 40 million people starving to death. Do you know what a horrible way of dying that is? I don't think you do. I don't either. I've heard about it. None of us, I think, who are listening to this podcast have truly ever gone hungry or starved. We say in hyperbolic fashion, oh, I'm starving, but we don't truly know what it's like to starve. From all accounts, it's absolutely horrid. I have no idea what it's like. Even before I started recording this episode, I thought, ooh, I better wait and eat lunch first because my stomach's gr uh, grumbling and this is going to be a, lo a long episode. Uh, <laughs> so I had to eat first because I felt hungry. That's nothing compared to this. Nothing. 40 million people. This is the darkest period in the history of China, more or less. There were famines before. There were mass starvation events before, but they were natural. They were things that were created by nature. The tragedy of the Great Leap Forward is that it's man-made. It is man-friggin-made. And even to this day, the Great Leap Forward is a big blank spot in the official historical narratives of the Chinese Communist Party and the PRC. If you grew up in the PRC and you're listening to this, you did not learn about the Great Leap Forward in any substantive way whatsoever growing up. It may have been briefly alluded to as a, right, uh, as a leftist excess of Mao Zedong with some hardship and suffering that occurred, and that's it. Okay? You cannot publicly criticize the Great Leap Forward. The party has not and will not admit that it is responsible, not only it, but Mao Zedong himself, the guy whose portrait ha who, uh, that hangs from Tiananmen Square, is responsible for the death of 20, 30, or possibly 40 million people who did not need to die. And it's still a sensitive issue today. There is no single book, scholarly book, on the Great Leap Forward that uses archival resources, because you can't get access to archival resources. It's a taboo topic. You can't even research it. Chinese scholars, foreign scholars, you can't research this topic. 
The only person who's managed to make any headway is a scholar named Frank Decoder. If you're interested in learning more about this, his book is called, I believe it's just called Mao's Great Famine. And he got some archival access, not systematic, not thorough, but he's got some. And that's what's a real eye-opener, some of the stuff you see being admitted in the internal documents about the violence that was used, the horrible things that happened to peasants during the Great Leap Forward. Go ahead and get that one, Mao's Great Famine by Frank Decoder. All right, it's the best we got, though. Even that's not a thoroughly researched, systematic, archival study of the Great Leap Forward, because such a study cannot be done. It will not be allowed to be done. This is in stark contrast to the Cultural Revolution. Cultural Revolution can be discussed today. It can be criticized, too. There are certain limits to that criticism, but you can criticize the Cultural Revolution. You can't do the same for the Great Leap Forward. Okay, next time. We will shift gears from economics to culture. Here's a little secret. The Cultural Revolution that most of you probably heard about from 66 to 76 was more about politics than culture. It really wasn't about culture. It was about politics. The real Cultural Revolution occurred in the 1950s, same time period we were talking about in this episode. But since the phrase Cultural Revolution will make everyone think of the more famous fake Cultural Revolution, which was really more about politics, we need to call the real Cultural Reform of the 1950s something else. So we'll call it Intellectual Reform under Mao in episode 38 of Beyond Huaxia. Thank you.